You're listening to the Molehill Podcast, an audio anthology of treasured writings read aloud by the writers themselves. I'm your host, Drew Miller. When I See It by Jen Rose Yokel. I know poetry when I see it. It dances and sings and leaps across the page. It shapes the white space, breathing life into ink marks and wood pulp. I know poetry when I see it, the essence of truth compressed into a line so small yet so full. You read it over and over again to know it by heart. You write it down word for word, letter for letter, period for period, for the wonder of what it felt like to write it. I know poetry when I see it, standing on my toes, straining for a glimpse over the shoulders of giants, feeling small and speechless in their presence. And sometimes I feel the surge of words begging to be set loose. I hear them whispering between the notes of a song or in the voice of a friend or in a flare of epiphany. I doubt their worth and wonder if they matter and if they could mean anything to anyone but me. But I write them, or at least I try to, to honor in the smallest way the poetry I've seen. Like a little girl in her mother's heels, five sizes too large. Dear Students, by Rebecca Reynolds My dream for you has very little to do with grades or test scores. Alone, they are nothing. They are marks on a page that filter into systems where marks on a page define too much. For the future I have seen is vast and wild, and percentages can no more capture what I have seen in you than a formula of light years can capture the glory of a distant sun spinning blue and gold in that cold, far silence where angels dance. My fear for you has little to do with those raw things people your age tend to think aloud. On the contrary, I am thankful that you are defiant of convention for convention's sake, of a flat, white, faux Jesus, of insufficient answers, of the same old music and the same old new music, of laughing too little, of sitting in chairs and doors, of books without heart, of lives without passion or adventure. I'm thankful because these things tell me that you have not let the drowsy drone of earth quell your newborn scream. You are unsatisfied, as you should be, with these clay-bound earth breaths. Be so always. But these are my grievances. You do not realize how beautiful you are, or how powerful, or how loved You have given up too soon on yourselves. You have allowed all these years of flat red marks on flat white pages to name you, and you ask me to nod while you toss out words and scratch at equations absently, half-heartedly? This I will not do. 
for I have heard your true names whispered by the great lion who has spoken distant suns into being. He has shown me the manner of royalty you are, men and women created for greatness. I will expect nothing less. That was Jen Rose Yokel reading her poem, When I See It, originally found in volume three of The Mole Hill, and Rebecca Reynolds reading her poem, Dear Students, originally found in volume two of The Mole Hill. Now we're going to hear a short work of fiction from Jonathan Rogers, but before we do, there's something of critical importance that I must relay to you about Jonathan. Whatever you think it is, multiply the urgency by roughly 12, the swampiness by 18, and the dubiousness by as much as 24, because this fact, once heard, simply cannot be overlooked. Jonathan Rogers saves all his mayonnaise packets for later. As for what he does with them, no living reptile knows. First published in Volume 2 of The Mole Hill, When the Angel Stirred the Waters, is what I like to call a riot. The story unfolds in the backwaters of Florida and directly downstream from Flannery O'Connor. It involves a mermaid, a fistfight at a beloved whirlhole, and for those of you who are curious, yes, an alligator. Quick disclaimer, there are a few moments of mild profanity in this story, so if you are listening with your children and would rather them not hear any curse words, here's your warning. Without any further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy When the Angel Stirred the Waters. When the Angels Stirred the Waters I have heard the mermaid singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. T.S. Eliot from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. In the years since Ramona joined the mermaid show, Randall had spent most afternoons beside the whirlhole, drunk. The slow swirl of the water eased his worried mind, as did the liquor. His friends were always there, such as they were, drunks and ne'er-do-wells, moochers and cashers of disability checks. The old guard was entirely gone, half of them dead, half gone straight. When Step and a Half drowned, a few of them got religion and never came to the whirlhole again. Among those who left was Randall's best friend, Toby, whom Randall hated. The younger guys were all right, but they knew little of suffering and seemed to think the sandy banks of the whirlhole were their personal pleasure grounds. Some of them even brought girls on the weekends. They rarely left a man to his ruminations. The sun was already high in the sky when Randall was awakened by the scratch and snuffle of an armadillo rooting through the leaves near his head. Squinting through swollen eyelids, he saw the shifting green and brightness of sunlight filtering through the leaves of a live oak. His throbbing head was pillowed on a mound of Spanish moss. With a groan, Randall raised himself up on an elbow and turned toward the sound of the armadillo, which clattered off into the sparkleberry bushes. Even that much noise felt to Randall like a cheese grater rasping across the inner lining of his skull. Randall wasn't in the habit of passing out drunk, but the day before had been a hard one. 
Coming home from the third shift at the prison, he drove past Ramona's mother's house, and there in the driveway sat a white Lexus with a Florida license plate and a window decal of a mermaid seated like a mudflap girl, knees up and elbows thrown back. Ramona was in town, probably with her dentist husband. Randall had only seen Ramona once since she graduated high school and left Lister for good. He and Toby drove down to Wikiwachi to watch her in the mermaid show. They sat in the front row, not ten feet from the tank. In her bespangled lycra tail fin and the clamshell bikini top, Ramona was scarcely recognizable as the girl they had known in Lister. She was a sea nymph, a daughter of Triton. When she drank a Coca-Cola underwater, Randall and Toby leapt to their feet and clapped and hooted wildly. After the show, they barely had the chance to speak to her. Toby had to get back for work, and Ramona's next performance was in 15 minutes anyway. She spoke politely to them as she sat on the fake rock, still wearing her fake tail fin and blinking her fake eyelashes. But it was clear to Randall that she had moved on. How could two boys from Lister expect to hold the attention of a mermaid? Ramona did come back home for her wedding, easily the biggest the town had ever seen. The dentist paid for it. The five bridesmaids were all wiki-watchy mermaids, not Lister girls, and they all wore their tail fins. But Randall wasn't there to see the spectacle. He had been invited, but he couldn't bring himself to go. It'll give us closure, Toby had said, but Randall didn't want closure. After spotting Ramona's Lexus, Randall turned his car around for a second look and kept on driving, but not toward home. When Lister Liquors opened that morning, Randall was waiting at the door. When his drinking buddies arrived at the whirlhole that afternoon, he was drunk already. And now it was Saturday and getting close to noon, and Randall's tongue felt like a whetstone in his mouth. His gorge rose at the sight of the empty whiskey bottle lying on the sand beside him. He needed water. On knees and elbows, he dragged himself to the water's edge, stopping twice to let his head and stomach settle. The whirl hole was an artesian well, about twice the size of a public pool and elliptical in shape. Its water was purer even than the tap water in Lister. Randall submerged his whole head and drank by gulps. He came up for air, then plunged his head in again. His slitted eyes opened wide, and he watched the sway of the broad grasses on the sandy bottom. The gentle stir of the water began to soothe the ache in his head. But he was soon startled out of his reverie by the approach of something big and dark. He lurched backward onto the sand and was astonished to see the black knobbed head of an alligator float past the very spot where his own head had been a second earlier, followed by a broad grooved back and the two high ridges of an alligator's tail making a sinuous parallel before meeting in a narrow V at the tip. The great reptile was eight feet long, maybe nine. Not propelling itself, it rode the rotating current of the whirl hole. Randall marveled as the prehistoric giant made a slow lap around the ellipse of the pool. It occurred to him that he might be hallucinating. He picked up one of the dozens of cans that littered the bank and flung it at the alligator as it floated past again. It bounced off the armored back and lighted in the water, where it was carried along by the same rotating current that carried the undisturbed alligator. All his life, Randall had been coming to the whirl hole, but he had never seen an alligator here, had never even heard of an alligator here. It had been the best swimming spot in Lister before the drunks took over. Randall and Toby had swum here as boys, or rather they played in the water here since neither could swim. One would jump from the live oak into the water, and the other would fish him out with a wooden pole they kept on the bank for the purpose. 
When they were older, Randall and Toby watched Ramona swim in the Whirl Hall, strengthening her strokes and practicing her tricks against the day when she would drive south to audition for the Mermaid Show. She backstroked whole ellipses with the current and breaststroked whole ellipses against the current and treaded water for minutes at a time. She twisted and flipped as lithe as an otter, smiling and waving at her two-boy audience the way the mermaids did at Wiki Elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist, wrist. Yes, Randall had seen some wondrous things at the whirl hole, but he had never seen an alligator. Every time it came around, he bounced another can off its hide, as if to convince himself that it wasn't an apparition or a trick of the light. The smiling alligator paid no mind either to Randall or to the cans he threw. By the time Daryl and Chuck arrived, the first of the whirlhole regulars, a dozen cans floated alongside or behind the alligator, like a fleet of John boats escorting an aircraft carrier. There's the old sinner, Daryl whooped. Back earlier, still here. The sound of his voice brought Randall's hangover back in its full power. How am I supposed to keep on the straight and narrow when I see my elders and role models getting drunker than a skunk, Chuck asked. Contributing to the delinquency of a minor, Randall, that's what you've been doing. Neither Daryl nor Chuck were minors, but they were a good 15 years younger than Randall. Randall tried to pretend he couldn't hear them, though he winced at every syllable. He just kept watching the alligator, now rounding the last curve and heading into the final stretch. I wanted to bundle you up and take you home, Chuck said, but Daryl said it'd be a shame to disturb you. We figured you were safe enough, too passed out to roll into the water. Chuck stopped short when he saw what Randall was looking at. Hot almighty dog, he shouted, pointing excitedly at the alligator. Daryl, do you see this? Daryl looked where Chuck was pointing. He whistled low and long. Would you look at that thing, he breathed. Chuck scanned the bank for something to throw at the alligator and found Randall's whiskey bottle. He winged it, but in his excitement, he overshot the alligator by a yard. The bottle joined the convoy of cans trailing the alligator, which continued circling, unperturbed. Randall shoved Chuck. Stop it, he said. You're going to hurt it. I, by God, hope I hurt it, Chuck answered. I don't want to get ate by no alligator. The alligator was only a few feet away from them now. Daryl picked up the wooden rescue pole and hoisted it to his shoulder like a harpooner, ready to jab the alligator in the eye when it came a little closer. Randall knocked the pole out of his hands before he could do it. Leave my alligator alone, he said. Chuck snorted. Your alligator? What, did you bring it from home? Well, I was the first to see it, Randall said, and it ain't hurting anybody. I just like watching it. The three of them had watched the alligator for two more laps and bounced six more beer cans off its hide before Hugh and Walter showed up. We're watching Randall's alligator, Daryl announced. Don't try to hurt it or Randall might knock you down. Hugh and Walter were willing enough to leave the alligator unmolested except for the barrage of aluminum cans every time it passed by. But Chuck couldn't resist the temptation to run the quarter mile to the liquor store to tell about the alligator in the whirl hole. From there, word spread quickly. There was little to do on a Saturday afternoon in Lister. By the time a half hour had passed, it seemed the whole town had made its way to the whirl hole. Randall grew increasingly agitated as he thwarted the locals' plans to shoot the alligator or lasso the alligator or wrestle the alligator or beat it with sticks. In no time, the banks of the whirl hole were clear of beer cans. They were all in the water trailing the alligator, which, despite its considerable audience, was still as self-possessed as ever. So Randall's nerves were on edge already when his old best friend Toby made an appearance. Randall, Toby said, extending his right hand, it's been a while. Randall took his hand, but only because he didn't know what else to do. 
surprised as he was at his old friend's appearance at the Whirl Hole. Toby had sworn the place off. He had gotten jolly and a little fat since last time Randall saw him. Thought you were too good for the Whirl Hole, Randall said. I'm not too good for the Whirl Hole, Toby answered, but the Whirl Hole was none too good for me if you know what I mean. I do not know what you mean, said Randall. Toby dropped Randall's hand, and an awkward silence prevailed in spite of the whooping and carrying on that swirled around them. Anyway, said Toby, gesturing toward the alligator, I didn't want to miss this. Toby, determined to reconnect with his old friend, returned to the topic that had been their go-to in the old days, Ramona. Uh, Ramona was telling me that alligators used to get in the spring at Wiki he said, but they only canceled the show if the gator was bigger than four foot. Scanning the crowd for any sign of hostility toward his alligator, Randall acted as if he hadn't heard Toby. Can you imagine, Toby continued, mermaids swimming with alligators. They just push them out of the way and get on with the show. He gestured with his right hand like a running back giving a stiff arm. Randall continued to ignore Toby. Walter, overhearing the conversation, shook his head and ran a hand through his greasy hair. Them mermaids are badass, he observed. A sneer distorted Randall's face as he glared at Toby. So now you know more about mermaids than I do, he said. I ain't trying to get sideways with you, Randall, Toby said. You got no need to take offense. Randall sniffed and continued surveilling the crowd. Speaking of Ramona, Toby said, and then he cleared his throat. Do you uh, do you know she's in town? Yes, Randall said quietly without looking at Toby. I did know that. He kicked at something in the sand. I reckon you went to see her? I did. And her dentist's husband? Him too. You bowed and scraped to the dentist, did you? I didn't bow or scrape Randall. He's not a bad fella. He invited me to go fishing on his boat in the Gulf. Randall finally looked at Toby, searching his face. Then Randall reached back a ropey arm and punched Toby on the eyebrow. Toby staggered back a step, as much from surprise as from the blow itself. He stared at Randall in mute astonishment. The dumbfounded look on his face infuriated Randall even further. You don't know one thing, Randall growled. He lunged at Toby, grabbed two fistfuls of shirt, and slung him to the ground. The two men kicked and struggled in the sand. For a second or two, nobody in the crowd spoke. So shocked they were at the sight of two 40-year-old men writhing on the ground like a couple of schoolboys, one paunchy, one wiry. But soon they found their voices, and they whooped and howled and pumped their fists in the air, egging them on to greater deeds of glory. Randall managed to get on top of Toby. He put both knees on his chest and wrapped his fingers around his throat. You never loved her, he hissed. You never suffered. Toby was a gentler soul than Randall, but he was also bigger. When Randall's fingers began to clench around his throat, he easily threw the smaller man. A great shout went up from the onlookers when they saw that Toby was ready to do battle in earnest. Both men rose to their feet, then they charged toward one another and collided with a fleshy slap and a thud. Randall's foot slipped and the two men fell in a pile near the water's edge. Toby wrapped his arms around Randall as if to subdue him, or perhaps to soothe him the way a mother enfolds a fretful child in her arms. But Randall wouldn't be subdued or soothed either one. He wiggled out of Toby's embrace and climbed on his back, boxing him on the ears. Toby rolled over on his back, crushing Randall under his weight, and the two men rolled over again, and then again. And then they found themselves in the whirl hole, where they continued to struggle. They thrashed the water to a froth. 
The combatants unclenched and stood facing one another in waist-deep water. Both men put their hands on their knees, trying to catch their breath. Randall still glared at Toby. Then a look of sadness softened his face. You left me too, he said. Why did you leave me, Toby? Toby shook his head and smiled. You stupid son bitch, he said. Nobody asked you to suffer. You took that on your own self, and it didn't do anybody a lick of good. Randall's face twisted again into a tight snarl. With the last of his strength, Randall lunged at Toby, pushing him backward into the deep water. Toby grabbed instinctively at Randall, pulling him with him. Now they found themselves in water that was over their heads, and neither man could swim. Unaware of the danger, the assembled crowd mistook their flailings and splutterings for the awkward gyrations of inexperienced fighters. The Listerites pushed and jostled one another for a better view. Randall and Toby went down once and came up again, clutching at one another, unable either to find help or give it. They went down a second time and somehow managed to come up again. This time, Randall could tell that the shouts of the crowd had changed to something more urgent and focused. And when he looked to the right, he saw why. The alligator was coming around again. Only this time it was not floating lazily, but propelling itself toward the flailing men, its pink toothy maw open wide. But then a form in a green billowing skirt flashed through the water and intercepted the alligator, giving it a firm shove just behind the front leg, sending it off course and away from the drowning men. The outstretched hand, Randall noticed, had salon-perfect nails and three shining rings. With a graceful flip turn, the woman swam with smooth, powerful strokes back toward the bank. Simultaneously, the end of the rescue pole appeared in front of Randall and Toby. They grabbed hold and let themselves be pulled toward safety. At the other end of the pole was a man Randall had never seen before. He was silver-haired and deeply tanned, with a strong chin and teeth so white and straight that he scarcely looked human. He wore a pink golf shirt and white pants like Randall had seen men wear on television, but never in Lister. Still holding the rescue pole with his right hand, the silver-haired man reached out to the woman with his left to help her out of the water. Her hair was smaller, hips were bigger, but there was no mistaking those cheekbones or those blue eyes that turned down at the corners. Ramona's beauty hadn't faded in the years since Randall had last seen her. Rather, it had grown and deepened. In the 20 years since Ramona left Lister, Randall had seen her only as a blank screen on which he projected his fantasies of how the world ought to be, or his darker dramas of self-loathing. So he was utterly unprepared for the stab of joy he felt when his rescuer's silver-haired dentist kissed her square on her lovely mouth. Ramona, he saw, was a woman, and beautiful, and happy, and Randall was glad of it, even as he marveled at what a fool he'd been. Dripping on the bank, her green skirt clinging to her legs like a sheath, Ramona scarcely acknowledged the wild applause of the Listerites. She turned instead toward Randall and Toby, beamed on them a beatific smile, and waved. Elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist, wrist. Beneath the Flood by Jen Rose Yokel. One. I was six years old the day I decided to go under, so small and new to the bright mystery of living. All I knew was the tug of a question, 
Why wait? The boys and girls sat at small wooden desks, faces down, listening. I don't remember her voice or her exact words, but I remember the teacher's permed hair and the essence of a question. Do you want to ask Jesus to live in your heart? I thought I knew him anyway, but still my small hand went up. Thursdays were chapel days, boys in ties, girls in dresses, and those that said yes gathered, nervous, backstage, ready to be baptized before the adults. That one kid in class, the one with freckles and crooked teeth who was always knocking me into the playground dirt, said, she'll freak when she goes underwater, knowing I was fearful and shy. I didn't freak. I don't remember the preacher's face or name, but I remember old, strong hands laying young life into death. I remember cold water in a blue plastic tub behind the altar, my hair floating around me as I descended. I remember a moment of hovering like a spirit under the waters before I rose. 2. I've seen babies marked with holy water. They lie there, small and fragile in the hands of the preacher, before the eyes of family and extended family they have yet to meet. They seem too young to need washing. I always wonder if they'll cry when their brow is splashed with water, but they don't. They lie there in one strong hand while another gentle hand, cupped and dripping, pours the water over them. And the old sanctuary breaks open with joy. The morning light bends through stained glass, and the gathered family marvels at new life made newer. I wonder at the calm in these children. I wonder if they stay content because they know a secret I've long forgotten. Perhaps they're still used to swimming in something liquid and holy, and here at the dawn of life before sorrow has a chance to touch them, before they know heartbreak, loneliness, and longing, the mark of water can't burn them yet. We have sinned and grown old, but they are young and remember. Three. I've seen my niece's ocean baptism, watched as she and a preacher waded waist-deep in the Atlantic, Family by blood, by marriage, and by faith gather in the harsh wind and watch a cold wave off the rocky Massachusetts coast sweep over her teenage body. The ocean has an urgency. It gives and takes and gives again. I wonder if it feels different from my swim in the baptistry. I wonder if it feels even more like descending into death, into the first element, into the silt of creation. The seawater churns around the world, catching the remnants of rocks, the ashes of those gone before, mixing with the salt of tears in memory of those lost at sea. She rises, fist in the air, victorious. She is shining as she's wrapped in a towel. And here we gather in joy, at the edge of a turbulent mystery, a people wandering a wide, dangerous world. Maybe we're all lost at sea swept out into the churning waves of time, waiting to be recalled again to life. 4. I've seen women who've heard the whisper, Why wait? They've passed through pain and been led by the hand to the house of God, and we'd cheer as we watch them pledge themselves to a new lover. They've known too much life, these beautiful women. They've felt the crust of addiction on their skin, felt shame hang like a millstone around their necks, felt the hound of heaven's breath on their backs as he pursues, shakes the earth to reach them. I wonder how they got so brave. 
I wonder at the terrors they've seen or how compelling the light must have been. They plunge into the water, then rise up in joy, clean for the first time in years. The weight dissolves like salt in the sea. Their hair drips with glory. Now they walk lighter, nearly floating across the room, like so many Cinderella's clothed in radiant white. Oh, daughters, you look so beautiful. You stride unashamed into the castle, into the dance, the feast. And the music stops, and every head turns when you enter. Daughters once dead, now alive. Daughters once lost, now found. Five. I wish sometimes I could go again, because life has given me need for washing. I'd go every day, under and under again if I could just to catch a glimpse of the way stained glass light breaks the surface. A glimpse of the mystery six-year-old me couldn't see. I'd go under, longing to stay in the flood, but unable to keep these lungs from demanding air, from pulling me back to the dry world above. I am too frail to stay there, after all. The weight of holiness could crush me. But still, I long for it. Still I want to shake loose from the preacher's hands and swim and swim into the sea until I can find your secret dwelling place, your temple dark and sacred under the waves, too deep for death, too dangerous for life. And there in the deeps, I could enter the place where the mysteries gather themselves, waiting, waiting for the flood and the cleansing to come. That was Jen Rose Yokel reading her piece Beneath the Flood, originally found in Volume 5 of The Molehill. If you have ever pleaded to your grumple not to spudgeon your soggage, because it's where you keep your oblute, for goodness sake, then you'll feel right at home with this next segment, Words of Befuddlement. <laughs> Dear listener, I have bittersweet news. This is the last episode of the first season of the Molehill Podcast. I know, I know. Cry your lonesome tears. Let it all out. It's been a hard year. There's nothing to be ashamed of. So that means that this is our last round of words of befuddlement. I have no more words to share with you. The befuddling has come to full fruition. But boy, do we have some aggressive definitions for last week's word, spudgeon. Your definitions seem to indicate a dark, hidden corner of human history 
in which we looked upon the potato not as a source of hearty sustenance, but as a gruesome weapon. So grit your teeth with me as we plod through this tuberous turbulence. Spudgeon, to bludgeon or hit with a spud or root vegetable. Spudgeon, an act in which one strikes another over the head with a potato. Spudgeon, when one is unfortunately bludgeoned by an undercooked potato. Spudgeon, to throw potatoes in self-defense as a means of warding off unwelcome intruders. Spudgeon, when structures adjacent to potato fields are pelted with a tuberous barrage as a tornado passes by. Spudgeon, to vehemently wield a spud as a blunt weapon. Spudgeon, one accused of harming a potato. Spudgeon, a loan word from the dwarvish spudgeon, meaning to beat with a potato. Now a colloquialism used by Shire hobbits for mashing taters. Example sentence, the gaffer said I'll make the gravy, Sam, if you'll spudgeon some taters for dinner. Spudgeon, to pelt someone in the head with potatoes. Example sentence taken again from Coughlump's Viking Miscellanea, Chapter 4, Irregular Battles. Although all the inhabitants of Palme de Terre were pacifists and brandished neither sword nor shaft, in 1097 they successfully defended their village from Hagrid the Dane by a sound spudgeoning. And now we have one outlier who claims that these violent interpretations of Spudgeon's etymology amount to nothing more than slanderous mishmash. Here's what they have to say. Spudgeon, one who performs life-saving procedures on potatoes, which would otherwise face certain decay and demise. Spudgeons undergo training in multidisciplinary institutions working at the intersection of gardening and medicine. Note, there has been some confusion in recent years with certain people thinking a spudgeon is a potato that's been turned into a bludgeon. This is a flagrant misuse of the word. And finally, we have one last definition that has nothing to do with beating anyone over the head. Spudgeon, a potato-colored sturgeon that subsists on a diet of nightshades. For those of you who may not know, a sturgeon is a very large primitive fish, and a nightshade is a plant related, perhaps unsurprisingly, to the potato. Wow, that was a real trip. In case you were wondering, Pete Peterson's definition falls squarely into the potato-as-weapon crowd. He writes, to beat soundly with a potato. Well, friends, that's almost it for season one of the Molehill Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're going to close out this season the same way we began it, with a beautiful poem by Rebecca Reynolds. But first, I must extend some hearty thank yous. Thank you to everyone who participated in this season. Rebecca Reynolds, Don Chaffer, Chris and Jen Rose Yokel, Jennifer Trafton, Adam Whipple, Helena Sorensen, Malcolm Geit, Andrew Roycroft, Jonathan Rogers, Jana Barber, Chris Slayton, Russ Ramsey, Shajay Clark, and Andrew Peterson. These beautiful voices are not only contributors to the molehill, they have also written regularly for the Rabbit Room blog. And I can't believe that it's my job to read 
and share their writing on a regular basis. It's a deep joy. Lots of gratitude as well to Zach and Maggie, who composed all original music for this podcast. They are about as clever as it gets. And if you haven't listened to their music yet, you totally should. Thank you also to Ron Block for letting us use those gorgeous instrumental songs from A Light So Fair. And last but not least, thank you to the whole Rabbit Room team for dreaming up this podcast with me and helping me bring it to life for the last eight weeks. Nowhere else have I found such a deep well of creativity, joy, laughter, and silliness all mixed together. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. And now here is our parting poem from Rebecca Reynolds. I encourage you to take this one with you. It'll go a long way. The Farmer by Rebecca Reynolds I would have driven eight hours just to listen to him pray. When supper is set, I try to stand near him because he smells like the field, like the burley that hangs to dry in the barn, like potatoes packed away in the cool of his root cellar, like hard white soap and like wild onions. His shirts are worn thin from time and economy. You would think he was a shy man unless you were patient. Then he would tell you all the secrets of growing things. He cultivates the tiger melon because it is fragrant. He cultivates the beans and the corn. He has learned to can, dry, cure, and forgive because he has known scarcity. He has knelt in drought and asked for rain, knelt over children dying, knelt over graves and births. He has hid himself in the rock of ages, keeping small enough to become great, The simple life is not a simple thing. To walk one's span of days, watching the deconstruction of the world, holding fast to the first best things. It is more than I have done. But he has spent his morning hours under the clear, violet skies, and he has spent his summer evenings bowing over boiled greens, thanking God for the bounty I have seen him shut his eyes before the tinny old piano at the country Baptist church while it rang out visions of high heaven. His countenance was like the face of Moses. It is one thing to speak of grace and another to live it out among twelve red chickens and twelve black cows in the same house where you came to love the wife of your youth while she faded and you learned to make the meals and wipe the edges of her mouth and Remind her which of your boys had already gone to Jesus. In that same house turns a circle where the farmer collects his fallen children and the fallen they have collected themselves. I have gathered with them, holding his hand while he talked to our father. He pressed my palm with a shaking thumb, intent beyond walls and fields, intent unto glory.